We are in the book of Revelation, so you're there at Revelation chapter 11. And for those of you who are visiting, let me uh, give you a little summary of what the book of Revelation is about. John is writing to seven churches in the area known as Asia Minor, which is western Turkey today. And these are believers that are under great oppression by the Roman Empire in the first century. Uh, great persecution is about to break out, and John's writing them to tell them that they need to persevere in the faith, not buckle to the pressures of Rome, because Rome wants them to bow down and worship Caesar, and to make offerings to the Roman gods, and it's very tempting to do that because you're told that if you don't do it, you'll, you'll lose your job, uh, or if you don't do it, you'll, you'll lose your life. So John is saying, well... That's not the worst thing that can happen to you, losing your life. You could lose your soul. So be faithful, no matter what the cost. And he says, don't worry, God is about to judge the Roman Empire. His wrath is going to fall upon Rome. You're going to be justified. You're going to be vindicated. And Rome is going to be judged guilty for what it's doing. And he writes to tell these churches that he has had a series of visions. And in these visions, God has given him a quick glimpse into the future. The immediate future when Rome is going to be judged, and the distant future when the whole world is going to be judged. But the first half of this book deals mainly with how Rome is going to be judged. And he said this judgment on Rome is going to come really quickly. It's going to come in their lifetime. And they just need to get ready for it. The persecution is going to get greater. But don't worry, God's going to judge the persecutors. So he tells about the series of visions that he has where Jesus appears to him and gives him these pictures about how the judgment is going to be upon the Roman Empire. And thus far, in his vision, he has seen a scroll with seven seals. And as... Each seal is opened, he sees another judgment that's going to come upon the Roman Empire in his day. And then he hears six trumpets blowing. There's going to be a seventh trumpet that blows, but so far six trumpets have blown. And with each trumpet, a little bit more is revealed about how Rome is going to be judged. And he said, and Rome is going to face three woes, three severe judgments. And last week he said two woes have passed. So there's a third woe to come. Okay? So each one of these seals and each one of these trumpets announce uh, a judgment that's going to occur in the very near future, in John's day, upon the Roman Empire. So let's look at Revelation chapter 11, and we're going to read uh, verses 15 through 19. So here's what it says. Then the seventh angel sounded, that means blew the trumpet. So now he's going to get another vision of how Rome's going to be judged. In his day. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces, and they worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, and some translations say it is to come. Many translations don't have that last phrase. We give you praise or thanks because you've taken your great power and you reign. 
and the nations were angry. And your wrath has come. And the time of the dead, meaning, has come. That they should be judged, that justice should be done. And that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened. <coughs> and the ark of the covenant was seen in these temples. And there were lightnings and noises and thunderings and earthquake and great hail. <coughs> now, in verse 15 that we just read a second ago, the seventh angel blows the trumpet, but there's no third woe. He said, two woes have passed. That's what he said last week. But he doesn't mention the third woe. He's never going to mention the third woe. We're sort of left hanging. When's this third woe going to come? Does it come with the seventh trumpet? Is there going to be another judgment with this trumpet? He doesn't explain that too well. Instead of the woe, what he sees is praise. Heaven open and people up in heaven praising and thanking the Lord. Now, here's how we're going to outline these few verses. Okay? These verses can be divided into three sections, three scenes. Okay? Verse 15, scene number one, the sounding of the trumpet. Okay? Scene number two, verses 16 through 18, the people's response in heaven. Okay? Scene one, the blowing of the trumpet. Scene 2, verses 16 through 18, the people respond. And then verse 19, the judgment upon the Roman Empire. Okay? So let's look at scene number 1. Let's look at verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded. Now this is in John's vision. He sees this happening. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. Now, I want you to notice several things about this verse. First of all, I want you to notice the arrival of the kingdom. Look what it said. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and His Christ. You see that? Have become? Some translations say the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord. But it doesn't matter. Basically, it means the same thing. Notice God's kingdom has come. You see that? Has become. Already, already it's happened. In his vision, he sees the kingdom has already come. Now, we think of the kingdom as coming when? Way in the future. But in John's vision, the kingdom has already arrived. Okay? Not in its fullness, but it has started. Notice it is what? It has become it's begun, in a sense. The kingdom has begun. Now look at the description of this kingdom. It's come. It's called the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ. In this case, the Lord represents God the Father, and Christ represents the Son. The word Christ means Messiah. So it's the kingdom of God the Father and of the Messiah, God's agent. That kingdom has already begun. Okay? Notice the triumph of the kingdom in verse 15. Notice it says, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and His Christ. You see that? Look, there's been a transition has taken place. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of the Lord and His Christ. 
So there is a transition or a transformation that has taken place from one kingdom morphing into another kingdom. You see how he says that? See, if you don't see that, you miss, miss a lot of the points. Now, notice one other thing. I want you to notice the phrase, the kingdoms of this world. You see that? The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. That phrase, the kingdoms of this world, in the Greek passage, only mentioned one other place in the New Testament. That phrase, the kingdoms of this world, mentioned only one other place in the New Testament. You know where that is? Go to Matthew 4. Turn back to Matthew chapter 4. And when you see it, you'll recognize it. Because we have Jesus in the wilderness fasting. Remember he comes to the temptation? After 40 days of fasting, Satan comes and tempts him. And look at verse 8. Matthew 4 and verse 8. And again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain. And he showed him, what's this? What did he show him? All the kingdoms of the world. Same exact phrase in the Greek. Now, he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, and all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, I want you to notice that Satan in Matthew 4 is in control of the kingdoms of the world. They're his to give. Now, how in the world did he get them? Well, that's another story. I'm going to talk about it in a few moments. But these kingdoms are under the control or under the sway at the time Jesus is being tempted, under the sway of the wicked one, the devil. And he's the power behind the kingdoms. He's the power behind the world leaders. He's the power behind the throne. He's a kingmaker. And he says, you see all these kingdoms? And what he shows him is basically all the kingdoms of the world at that time were all the kingdoms that the Roman Empire had conquered. They had conquered that kingdom. They conquered the, the kingdom of Greece. They had conquered all these different kingdoms. And he shows him all those kingdoms that Rome had conquered. And he said, you know what? They're all yours. Now, who did they belong to when Satan showed them to him? Satan was behind, but who was really running the show on earth? Caesar. So he says, look, Caesar's running the show. These kingdoms belong to Caesar, because I've given them to him. But they belong to Caesar, and guess what? I can take them away from Caesar, and I can give them to you. He's a kingmaker. Now, had Jesus taken it, taken up the offer, guess what? He would have become the next king of the world. But if Satan could give him that king, those kingdoms, guess what he could also do? Take him away. So Jesus refuses to bow down and worship Satan. So here you have all the kingdoms of the world. On earth, Caesar's controlling them. Behind the scene is Satan. Now go back to Revelation chapter 11. And you'll see what happens. It says... In verse 15, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. Now Christ has the kingdoms. How did that happen? 
They don't have them anymore. How did Christ get them? What did you say? Yeah, the resurrection of Christ. When Jesus is resurrected, remember what He said to His disciples? All authority has been given to me on what? Who gave you that authority? God. Oh, now guess what? There's been a transfer out of Satan's hands into Christ's hands through the resurrection. And now Christ basically is taking back the kingdoms. So it sure doesn't look like it when you look at the Middle East. It's happening. You just can't see it. The kingdom has arrived in a certain way, not in its fullness, but something changed drastically at the resurrection. And he says, those kingdoms have become the kingdoms of the Lord and His Christ. That's happened already. Satan's no longer in control the way we think of him being in control. So look what else it says at the end of verse 15. And he shall reign, what? This can never be taken away from him. But he's the one, and he started to reign right now through his resurrection. He's ascended into heaven. He's sitting on the throne. All authority has been given to him in heaven and earth. And that reign has already started. And one day it will become visible to us when he comes back. We will see who's in charge. And then everything will come under his control in the sense that he rules and everyone will be in submission. So that's scene number one. You now look at scene number two, beginning in verse 16. We see the response of God's people. Now remember, this is a vision that John has. He sees this in his vision. This has happened in his vision. Okay? Now, the response. Verse 16. And the 24 elders who sat on the throne before God, this is in heaven, fell on their faces and they worshipped God. So now suddenly, the scene switches, and uh, he sees these 24 elders, <coughs> representing the Old Testament saints, the 12 tribes of Israel, the New Testament saints, represented by the 12 apostles, these 24, the New Testament and the Old Testament saints. When they hear this, they fall down, and they worship God. And they say... Look what they say. We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was. Some translations say and who is to come. Now, notice that they worship God and they give thanks. Notice how worship and thanksgiving are sort of Siamese twins. A person who's worshiping God is a person who gives thanks to God. That is the essence of worship. And then look what it says. Here's the reason for that praise. We give you thanks, O Lord, verse 17. Now look in the end of verse 17. Because, here's why we give you thanks. Because you've taken your great power and have reigned. Because you've taken your great power and reigned. So here, the rain has already begun, hasn't it? You see that? The rain has already begun, and that's why they're giving him thanks. It's just begun. The rain hasn't come to an end. This is the beginning of his rain. Okay? Now, I want to ask you a question. Here's a... Because I'm sure at this point, if we say that the kingdom of God has come, the kingdoms of this world, that we know them, that Satan used to control... 
have now been transformed or transitioned or trans uh, passed into Christ's hands, and he reigns, and his reign is going to be forever and ever in the saints praising the Lord in heaven, we say, wait a second. Uh, I thought God would, had always reigned. Wasn't God always on the throne? Doesn't the Old Testament say God reigns? Doesn't it say that in the Old Testament? Does, 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 do, you all, do you believe that God has always controlled the world? Do you believe that? Uh, then what's the difference between him reigning now and then in the Old Testament? He's always reigned, hasn't he? He's always, didn't King David worship God and say, God, you alone are my king? Have, didn't God always reign? How is this reign different? And this is uh, something that unless you get it, you'll never really understand what's happening here in the book of Revelation. This is one of the things that I would say most Bible teachers do not understand, do not comprehend this. Most seminary professors do not comprehend this. What's the difference between God's reign in the Old Testament and His reign in the New Testament? In order to understand that, you need to understand just a little bit of what happened in the Garden of Eden. Because in the Garden of Eden, remember God created Adam out of the dust of the earth, and he said, I'm going to make you the ruler of this earth. You and Eve, you will rule and you will reign under my authority. Just listen to my voice and obey me. There's only one thing you can't do, you can't eat from that tree. Just obey my voice and rule. You'll be my agents on earth. So, you know the story. The serpent slithers in. From Sweetwater, probably. <laughs> slithers in. And he tempts Eve. He said, did God say, you couldn't eat? Ah, you can eat. Go on and eat. So what do they do? They listen to that voice. And they disobey God. Now, so now there's two voices. The voice of God that they should be obeying and the voice of Satan that they did obey. But here's the point. They never lose control of the world. They still have dominion over the world, don't they? There's only two people at this point in the world. Of course, they run it at all. Then they have kids. Human beings continue to run the world. Do they still run the world today? Yes. I don't see ants running the world or, you know, porpoises running... Humans run the world. But guess what? It's different than with Adam and Eve before the fall. <laughs> then they ran the world and they were listening to the voice of God. They were under God. Now they run the world and whose voice are they listening to? Satan's voice. See, that's why Satan's called the God of this world in the New Testament. See, they are still running the world, but who's the power behind the world? power is Satan. So Satan, in a sense, controls the kingdoms of this world. It doesn't matter what the kingdom is. It could be the United States, it could be Libya, it could be you know, Russia, it doesn't matter. Every leader in this world can listen to one of two voices. God's voice or Satan's voice. As they rule. <laughs> as they rule. Now, King David, whose voice did he listen to? Usually God's. One time he decided to have a war, and he said, I better take a survey, see if we have enough men to win this war. And the scripture says, Satan was the one that inspired him to do that. Instead of just trusting God, he lets Satan say, you better take a survey, see if you got enough men to win the war. No matter what God said, and guess what? He listened to the wrong voice. So there's always been two voices. 
And since the garden, Satan has usurped God's authority in a sense. And he controlled the world. Now, was God still God? Yes. But guess what? People weren't listening to God, were they? So what did God do? It says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. God destroyed the whole world with a flight. Remember that? Because no one listened to his voice anymore. So what did he do? He told Noah to be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth, take dominion over it. And guess what? Noah gets drunk the first night after the flood. He stopped listening to God's voice. And then guess what? God has to scatter the people. Remember that? The scattering of the nations confuses the tongues. And they're not listening to God's voice. No one listened to God's voice. So God plucked out one man named Abram. He said, now you're going to listen to my voice. And now from you through you, I'm going to build another nation. It's going to be a nation that listens to my voice, Israel. And did they? Usually, but not always. And then they end up, when they didn't, they ended up in Babylonian captivity. They made a mess of things. Because they were listening to the wrong voice. God says, I'm reclaiming the earth. I'm going to have a ruler of my choice. And so Jesus comes on the scene, and guess what? He only listens and obeys one voice. Satan comes, does he listen to him? Get behind me, Satan. Doesn't matter whether it's Peter saying it to him, or whether it's the devil in the wilderness. He does not listen to that voice. He's 100% obedient to the voice of God. And Rome and the rebellious leaders of Israel at that time killed him and said, we're getting rid of this guy. Because, you know, when you're around somebody who's holy, you don't like it. So they got rid of him. Three days later, God raised him from the dead. And he gave him all authority over earth. Christ he then ascended into heaven. And he took the throne right next to God. And he started ruling. And his rule can never be stopped. You know why? Because he's resurrected. Who can stop him? So, does God still rule? Did God rule in the Old Testament? Yes, but not like the New Testament. Something has changed. God's taking back total control of this world through a new man, Jesus. And so Christ is ruling. And this old world, and I don't care what country it is, it'll be this country here. All the kingdoms that are part of this world will one day go down the tubes. In fact, I'd say every kingdom that's ever existed up until this time has gone down the tubes, hasn't it? You think Libya may be going down the tubes this week? You think America's only 200 years old. You think we're going to go down the tubes one day? You may not have thought it 30 years ago, but you do today, don't you? And all that you see is going to be, has been, has been transferred over into the hands of Christ. And one day, He's going to rule, He's going to come back, and He's going to rule sovereignly on this earth, and every person will bow their knee to Christ, and they will only be obeying one voice in that space. So that is the key to understanding this, and that rule has begun already. Christ is on His throne. Does that make sense? Now look what He says in verse 18. The nations were angry. 
the nations were angry. Notice the word were angry. That's in past tense. When were they angry? <laughs> when were the nations angry? Well, what does the scripture say? You ever hear that, see that verse there? The nations were angry? You may have a cross-reference there, like this, one of the Psalms or something. See that? Psalm what? 21, Psalm 2, Psalm 8. Now, the nations were angry. Let me show you when the nations were angry. Go back to Acts 4. For a second. This is the only other verse I want to show you. And I think we can finish out Revelation. Look at Acts chapter 4. And you'll remember this verse. When were the nations angry? Well, John and Peter are before the Sanhedrin and they are talking about Jesus and how Rome killed him and here's what they say in verse 25, Acts 4.25 Who by the mouth of your servant David has said Why did the nations rage? They see how they were angry? And the people plot or imagine vain things. The kings of the earth that's the kings of the kingdom took their stand and the rulers gathered together and look who they were angry at. And look who they stood against. The Lord against the Lord and His Christ. Have you seen that before? You just saw that in Revelation 11. For you, for truly, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together and they raged and they were angry. And guess what they did? They killed him. So, when Revelation uses that verse back in 11.18, so we'll go back there, it says this, the nations raged, the nations were angry. It's talking about when they killed Christ. They were angry because he was obedient. He only obeyed the voice of God, and guess whose voice they were obeying? Satan. Satan's not going to put up with that stuff. He inspires them to kill Christ. So here we see the nations were angry. And then look at this. Verse 18. And your wrath has come. Now you see two words there, don't you? Angry. That reflects the character of the nations who oppose God. And then the next key word, wrath. That's God's response to the nation's Anger, anger. Now, when does the wrath come? Is the wrath in the future? Look. Now, you see that? The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. So, here he's talking about they killed Christ, and God's angry, and guess what God's going to do with the Roman Empire? And those leaders who plotted against it. They're going to experience his wrath. And that's in John's time. Not in the future. Is there going to be a future wrath? Yes, that's the end. That's the big one. He's not talking about the big one yet. This is his wrath that has come. And it's about to fall on the Roman Empire in John's day. Okay. Now, you have Israel who stood against Christ except for the remnant of believers. 
did God's wrath fall on Israel already? Oh yeah, in 70 AD, what up? God used Rome just to smash that temple and scatter the Jews. And guess what? God's wrath is about to fall on Rome. They're going to be judged. And they're going to be judged like every other nation that's been judged. And the things that you've seen in the seals and the trumpets are the things that are going to happen to the Roman Empire. They're just around the corner. The wrath has already come. It's already fallen on Israel. And it's going to fall on the Roman Empire as well. Now he gives us the particulars. Look what he says. He says this. The wrath has come. And the time of the dead, meaning, and the time of the dead has come, that they should be judged. Now the word judged there is not a good one. It means they should receive justice. So he says there's coming a time, the time has arrived for the dead to receive justice. Now, the dead what? In this case, it's the dead believers. The ones who have been martyred for their faith. Remember, what did they cry a few weeks ago in heaven? Oh Lord, oh Lord, when are you going to justify us? When are you going to take step in and do something about the Roman Empire? And God said, hey, the time has come for the dead to receive the justice. Now's the time. It's going to happen. And in this category you see two kinds of people who have died. Look what it says right in the middle of verse 18. And that you should reward your servants, the prophets. You see that? What prophets? Did we see any prophets last week? I think you did see prophets last week. You saw two witnesses. And guess what? They died in the vision and they get justice. You're going to reward your servants and the prophets, and that would be the and the saints would be Old Testament prophets, New Testament prophets who've been martyred for the faith, and just about everyone was martyred for the faith and dead. He said, "You're going to get justice, and look who else is going to get justice: those who fear your name, small and great. Not only the prophets, but even people in the churches, the seven churches of Asia Minor." who refused to bow their knee to the Roman Empire, and guess what happened to them? They're martyred. They're going to get justice as well. See? So the prophets are going to be rewarded, and those who fear your name, rather than fear Rome's name, small and great. And you don't have to be a prophet, it doesn't matter, you're going to be taken care of. So that's the first thing that's going to happen. The time of the dead has come. And there's a second thing that's going to happen. Look right at the end of verse 18. Those who are evil are going to get their just rewards. And the time has come that you should destroy those who what? Destroy the earth. You see that? So, the dead saints are going to get justice and the evil are going to get the wrath of God. God's going to destroy those who destroy the earth, who are abusing the earth, who are using the earth, using their power over the earth in a wrong way. The leaders of the empire and the people who are uh, not running things, not running the earth the way they should be running the earth. They rape the earth. They rape the people of the earth. 
They oppress people that God wants free. Uh, these are people who go around ruling the world, doing their own thing, oblivious of the voice of God and listening to the other voice. They follow the principles of this world. They look out for number one. They're not concerned about anything else, not concerned about the way God wants things. They are destroying the earth, and guess what? God's going to destroy them. Now there can be an application here as well, can't there? You could relate this to how you take care of God's earth. When God created the earth, did he create it for man? Yes. Did he create it beautiful? Yes. What are you doing with the earth? You're trashing it? You're stripping it of every natural resource for your own greedy profit? You know, Haiti used to be a plush area, but guess what? They came in and stripped them off the, all the forest. There floods there all the time now. See? God will destroy those that destroy His creation. Now, that could be an application. I think what He's really saying is He's going to destroy those people who are not running His earth the way He wants it run. They are listening to the other voice. They're listening to the voice of the destroyer. God will destroy them. And now you come to the third scene, which is the judgment itself. Because we haven't even been told what that judgment is. So look at verse 19. Then, somebody gets a glimpse into heaven. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of the covenant seen in his heaven. Now remember, this is all symbolism. Is there an Ark of the Covenant in heaven the way you think of it? Probably not. In other words, the Ark of the Covenant is where you took an animal and you killed it. You think God killed animals up in heaven? You think he's a heavenly butcher up there doing this? This is all a picture. Okay? These, are, these are images. These are symbols. In other words, what he's saying when he says, I saw God in his temple and I saw the Ark of the Covenant. Remember what the Ark of the Covenant looked like? There were two angels and God dwelt between the wings of the angels. That's where God's presence is. All he's saying is, I saw God's presence. <laughs> Suddenly I was caught up and I was in the presence of God. I saw a manifestation of God. That's what he's trying to say. This isn't a photograph. Now I can get you get my wallet out and show you a photograph of my kids, and guess what? You know exactly what they look like if it's up to date. This is not a photograph of heaven. These are symbols. But what he's saying, and the symbols have meaning, what he says, I've caught up and I was in the manifest presence of God. And then look what happens. He says in verse 18, And there were lightnings and noises and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. Now notice the sequence there. You see that sequence? You live in Texas long. You're very familiar with the sequence. You've been in storms? <laughs> look at the sequence. There were lightnings. Look, here's the first thing that happened. There's a flash, right? Next, noises. You hear that? Distance rumbling. Right? Then look next. And then, the clap of thunder. <coughs> and then look. Your windows shake. Look. The earthquakes. The whole house shakes. He's talking about a storm taking place. Earthquake from the storm. Everything shakes. And then what happens next? In Texas. Look. Hail. Now, what he's describing here 
is judgment. And this is not how it's not going to be there's a storm and some hail falls. And he's just using symbols. And this is not the final judgment. At the final judgment, there's an earthquake where the whole world shakes. Not your windows, you know. Uh, all in symbols. So this is not the final or the ultimate judgment, but this is the judgment that's going to come upon Rome. He's saying it's going to be like a storm comes and then man, it hits and scares you, and man, it just your house gets hit with that hail. And in those days, since they didn't have houses like we do with roofs and some people have you know metal roofs, and they had tents, and I mean they just people died. So what he's saying is, I'm going to destroy those who destroy the earth. And he's just using it in symbolic language. And every kingdom throughout history has been destroyed. And he says, Rome's going to be no different. Don't think you're different because you're suffering. Christians and believers have been suffering for centuries under the power of oppression of governments. And God's taking care of everyone. And guess what? He's going to take care of the Roman Empire as well. Did he take care of the Roman Empire? Is it still around? I don't think it's still around, is it? No, no it's not around. Guess what? Did the judgment come? Yes, the judgment's come. So, this is not the judgment at the end of the age. This it simply sets the stage. The judgment at the end of the age, which comes at the end of Revelation, is far greater than anything you can imagine. And with that verse ends the first half of the book of Revelation. And then chapters 12 through 14 are the theological center of the Revelation. We see the woman with the stars and the beast and all these kinds of things. And that's going to give you, that's going to pull everything together. It's going to give you all the theology of the book of Revelation. And then, when you get to chapter 16, he starts talking about the bold so, uh, that's where we'll pick up next week, and I guess if there's one message that John would want us to get across is that our God reigns. In a new way, different than he did in the past. Something has happened in history, and everything is now heading toward the end under the reign of Christ. That's where we'll pick up next week. Father, we thank you for this word. Help us to understand it clearly. Help us to get our our minds around it and realize that just as nations in the past have been judged and have been destroyed some can't, can't even remember the names of those <coughs> and this is the way you handle things and this is how your wrath falls upon nations who oppress your Help us to realize, Lord, it happens even in our day and age. And usually the way you do it is through other nations invading and economic disaster and plagues and all kinds of ways unimaginable. Everything we're seeing here, Lord, are symbols help us to get the gist of and the meaning behind these symbols. Oh, Lord, help us to be like the people of Revelation.